another new episode of the NCETM podcast where we talk about all things maths. I'm your host today, Rebecca Longworth from the NCETM communications team. Joining me today is Sue Johnston Wilder, an associate professor of mathematics education at the University of Warwick. She's here to talk to us about an important topic which may have impacted you when you were learning maths at school, or if you are a teacher, you may see the impact of it in the pupils that you teach. The topic we're going to dive into today is anxiety in maths. I want to find out about the relevance of this at different phases of education, how it impacts teachers and learners, and if there's anything we can do to tackle the symptoms of maths anxiety in our classrooms. So welcome to the podcast, Sue. Good morning, Rebecca. Good morning. It's really great to see you. Um, first of all, it would be great if you could introduce yourself. I'm Sue. Um, I'm a former maths teacher. Um, I moved into curriculum development and working with teachers, teacher development. And then uh, I started to realise that just making maths more interesting and exciting wasn't enough. We tried history of maths, we tried ICT, but there was a certain group of youngsters or, or learners, because they're not all young, that we weren't reaching. Um, and it coincided with my personal circumstances that I became an expert by experience in things mental health. Um, so what I started to develop, unfortunately, fortunately, I had a wonderful colleague. I have a wonderful colleague called Claire Lee, um, who was working at Warwick at the time. Um, and we started to work on the affective domain. Um, we recognised um, that we needed some people outside the math, math classroom to help with the, um, the problem. And we recruited a group of lovely um, adults who said that they would be happy to be um, maths angels. They said in order to be able to help with the maths, they needed more maths themselves. So we got a group round the table um, and in the middle of the first session, we used um, a number bigger than three as a power and one of the teachers burst into tears. And we realised that we had a lot of work to do, training adults to be able to overcome their own maths anxiety. And we also started working on building what we call resilience. You can tell that you're so passionate about it. It even comes into your introduction of yourself, how how kind of it's influenced you um, as a person, let alone just the work that you do. Um, so you mentioned something, maths angels. Could you just explain that a little bit more? The idea we had um, at the time, and this was way back in the um, 2009, was that the, the children, the learners in school, we were working in school at the time, needed safe spaces to ask questions that they thought were stupid questions and that they wouldn't um, be humiliated by those. We've come a long way since then in terms of articulating our framework. Um, but even then, the idea of psychological safety was quite key to our thinking. We didn't call it that because that one's only come into our, our radar um, more recently. But it feels very important and descriptive of what we're trying to achieve, that, that people who have um, being left behind or had adverse experiences or even sometimes traumatic experiences um, need that safe space to trust somebody who they can then explore 
more about what they've understood and what the problem is. So it turns out what we were trying to create was coaches, in fact, but we didn't know that at the time. Since that, we've developed then we've developed a lot of understanding about the role of coaches and the role of, of um, creating safe spaces. What like what's the most significant thing that you've learned um, on your journey to finding out more about anxiety within maths? Oh, wow, that's a good question. The most significant thing that I have learned is a real eye opener. We know that we panic if there's a tiger in the room. We know that our, our brain is set to protect us. What I and perhaps some of the rest of us hadn't realised was that the brain is just as averse to social threats as it is to physical threats. So if you experience anything that the brain would, would experience as threatening your well-being, then it remembers that and stores it as dangerous, basically. And that was a real eye-opener. And we've gone on to work on that further. Um, but, but that's definitely most significant. That's interesting. Thank you for sharing that with us, Sue. Now, in relation to that, I wonder if you could share the hand model of the brain with us. I've heard you talk about it before, and I think it would really benefit other teachers if they heard about it too. Let's understand what's going on when things go wrong. So we're not psychologists, we're educators. And I want to really make that point quite strongly because we have a lot of debates with maths teachers about whether it's their job or somebody else's to, to work on this. But I think with, with four simple tools, we can do just enough psychoeducation to help our learners recover from anything bad that's happened in their lessons or their experience of mathematics at home or anywhere um, and come back and flourish in our lessons. So the first tool that you've just asked me to explain is, is um, Dan Siegel's hand model of the brain. Um, and when, when you've watched me do this, um, it's good to watch the, the guy himself um, because he's, a, he's the neuroscientist, we're the educators. Um, and, and there's a video we can we can put up on the on the link um, to him explaining the model. So if you imagine that your two hands represent your your brain, and if you look at the brain when it's thinking and, and calm and at rest or puzzling over some problem, it's quite well connected. If you see how tightly your fist and um, all the bits touch you touch each other. If you imagine the front um, fingernails representing the prefrontal cortex, which is the part of the brain where you do difficult things like maths and semantics and learning new languages and things, the, the learning new languages the, the hard way, as opposed to when you're a baby. Um, and then the cortex represents the rest of your hand. Um, and then if you open up the brain, the thumb tucked in um, represents that um, part of the brain that does the fight and flight. It's called the amygdala, but we don't need to know the technical terms. We just need to know this is a really good model. Um, and what happens if you're terrified of something like a tiger coming into the room is that effectively the, the thinking part of your brain goes offline and the part that controls the physiology pumps your body ready to fight or flight. So you get an increased heart rate you start feeling a bit sick because the, the, the resources are leaving your stomach because your stomach's not needed at that point. Um, you might feel sweaty palms. Um, there's, there's lots, if, if people think about a time when they've been frightened, they, they recognise the physiological symptoms. Um, but you cannot think mathematically because that's not what your body's trying to do. Your body's trying to pump you for saving your life. And so if anybody tries to talk to you when you're in that state, you basically can't hear it. 
because it's like an alarm going off in your head. You have to learn the relaxation response, which was written about by Herbert Benson, to put your brain back together in those situations if there is no real threat, or you have to protect yourself like leaving a room. Um, but that is a very powerful hand model of, of the brain. And the way that we use it in our work is that if you're trying to teach somebody some mathematics, if they do that, it means please stop talking. I'm panicking and I need to calm down. And a lot of people think they're stupid at maths. And the key message with this tool is you're not stupid, you're panicking. If you calm down, you'll be able to do the mathematics, but you need to be in a safe enough space or have otherwise triggered your relaxation response to get back to that place where your maths can be reconnected with your brain and you can actually think clearly. And, and for, for me, that's a really important liberating message for anybody who feels stupid at mathematics. Yeah, it's that confirmation that, you, yeah, you're not stupid, you're just panicking. I really, really think that's a powerful thing to say, um, because as a teacher myself in the past, I can picture children who have panicked within math lessons. You need to kind of bring them back down to a safe, where they feel safe, where they feel um, respected, where they feel calm enough to be able to see the numbers and the maths, because otherwise, yeah, you can't see past that. It's just the way that we all are built. So. Yeah, that's Absolutely. really powerful. There's nothing wrong with you. It's a perfectly normal reaction to, to perceived threat. Um, and it's you, you say how, as a, as a math teacher, you've already observed this phenomenon and you knew what to do. What we're doing with the hand model of the brain is sharing it with our learners and their parents and their adults around them and not just keeping it in our own knowledge, but giving us a tool to explain it to, to the others. Because when you start working with children who are anxious, you have to recognise you're also dealing with anxious staff, anxious parents all around these young people. A lot of the teaching support staff have had bad prior experiences. And absolutely just what you said. There's nothing wrong with you. So if I see anybody who says, I say I'm a math teacher and they do that. They put their hands up, yeah. What happened to you? Not what's wrong with you. But, you know, and that's from trauma-informed literature, that, that behind that need to protect themselves from the word maths is, a, is an experience that I need to know about. Yeah. That's, that's yeah that's really interesting so you say that there'll be a lot of people around that child that are maybe struggling with um, the impact of anxiety and maths anxiety themselves so how prevalent is it in all age groups is it something that children from as young as kind of the first year of primary school up to adults is, is it something that um, impacts everybody or not everybody some people thrive with the way we've historically taught mathematics. It's like a human being spectrum, if you like. On one end, there's the people who start out building their logic system in their brain earlier. At the other end, there's people who start out building their empathy system earlier. And as we know from Carl Jung, um, these systems can both be developed over time, but you need maturation to develop the second one, if you like. You need time. And the danger is that you put people in boxes from quite young age and you say, oh, you're mathematical, you're the English one, you know. And actually, the whole of logical and empathetic experiences are part of the human being spectrum. And we should be entitling all learners to learn logic and um, empathy. Um, so what happens early on is the children who are more empathetic, naturally, which tends to be more girls, but it's not not all girls, it's some, most girls and some boys, um, 
they tend to need more of a narrative around the maths and more sense of why it's important and more sense of it being fun and something to share and work collaboratively. Um, and the and, and not lots of lots of symbols early on, but lots of apparatus and being able to scaffold any maths experience with with apparatus with story. And then the ones who are naturally um, more logical, if you like, more more systemizing in Baron Cohen's words, would be the ones that would naturally pick up the way it's traditionally taught and wouldn't be distressed by it, but might be more distressed by working in groups or something like that, where they haven't developed their social skills and their sense of reading people yet. So if we think of everybody as lifelong learners, you can imagine that that in an education system where where you just grow everything, have a growth mindset, um, so these children don't get put in boxes. But in reality, currently, um, I would say that the level based on one sample survey, the level of anxiety in year seven is about a quarter high and a quarter significant. And that is a large population of our learners. And we don't know enough about exactly when it develops, but we do know narratively that there are children age six who burst into tears at a maths lesson. And we do know that by the time they're eight or nine years old, the parents, a sixth of the parents are struggling to support them with the maths homework. So what that tells you is that there's an awful lot going on laying the primary school foundations. And there's been a lot of work done on primary maths over the, the years. Um, and, and we're trying, but there are still possibilities of getting adverse experiences even at primary. And you don't know whether they're coming from home or school. But what you do know is that, it, that maths anxiety is contagious. And we've known since the 70s that an awful lot of elementary school teachers and primary school teachers have maths anxiety. And so the more empathetic learners will pick it up from their teachers and learn that, that maths is something to be frightened of. So if you want a number, then by the time we get to adult, I would say one in three adults has maths anxiety serious enough to interfere with them doing maths and that they need to learn how to address it before they can do all the things that maths brings like quite often a job and, and I, in my current role I meet a lot of people in middle age um, or maybe younger <laughs> who wanted to be a nurse or a teacher or a doctor when they were 18 but couldn't face the maths and so we lose those people from those professions that we actually want and need by not tackling the impact of their prior experiences. In other countries, it's higher. I'm working Brazilians at the moment, and they reckon their estimate is 45 to 50 percent of the population. The problem with giving you numbers is that mass anxiety is a spectrum and it, and it doesn't really um, lend itself to giving you a percentage. Um, but, but if we go for the one in three, that really highlights to, to teachers and to adults and to anybody in lifelong learning that there is a big problem here. Yeah, that is a that is a massive amount, isn't it? Um, and if you think about the people like you said, maybe that haven't been able to apply for jobs or didn't have the confidence to do too because of the maths um, and how that has a knock on effect with their children. And like you say, if it's contagious and how that can impact the children at home and then coming into school. So if there are teachers listening now, um, primary teachers, secondary teachers, 
teachers in post-16 settings, what signs should they be looking out for in their pupils? Certainly in FE, what, what the teachers experience is avoidance. The learners will not come to maths lessons and they won't come in higher education. They won't go to the maths support centre. Um, they need to believe that they'd be safe if they had another go at maths. So their body and brain are protecting themselves from further harm in the best way that they can. And so attendance in FE is very poor. Um, so avoidance is the first symptom I would be looking for. The second one is um, either youngsters who are um, more shirty than they would be in any other lesson, more, more, more aggressive, if you like. And the extreme case is somebody who um, was on one of our courses and we hadn't yet finished the process of, of, of building their maths resilience and she threw a chair. She was so cross at having to do more maths and she was faced with a problem. She didn't know how to do it. So she 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 short circuited into into um, panic mode. Um, there are others who aren't so shirty and will avoid by being helpless and teachers will be able to recognise the youngster who says, I can't do it. And you've only asked them to draw a picture of a triangle. Oh, yeah. Or, or you've asked them to do something that we perceive as simple, but it's not simple if you're panicking. And so that that sense, sense of a learner being helpless or um, paralysed with fear, not doing something that we know they know how to do, or just totally avoiding. Those, those are the typical things that you would see. So passivity or aggression, fight, flight or freeze, in other words. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, then, and then it goes beyond that because there are youngsters who we know are perfectly capable, but they don't do well in, in tests and they don't score what they wanted to score because... There's classroom anxiety, if you like, but there's also test anxiety and they're two parts of, of the story. Um, and so any youngster who's not progressing as you would hope them to, or they're not doing as well in maths as in any other subject, those are signs that there might be an underlying problem. So what other tips would you give to teachers or practitioners who want to help um, a youngster or themselves with maths anxiety and resilience within that? Um, so we've shown the hand model of the brain. We talk about the relaxation response. Um, a lot of professionals who work in anxiety, psychologists and therapists, will teach the, um, the, the client relaxation strategies. And there are some that we can use in the classroom. So because they're not um, therapeutic, because they're teacher strategies, I'd call them micro-mindful, there's things you can do in the classroom. And two of those are examples. One is five-seven breathing or square breathing or something like that, where if you're in a panic state, and if I mean, in South Africa, we've got teachers using this strategy. They have cluster 60. OK, how's everybody feeling? And if anybody puts up their hand like that, then they, they spend a moment calming down and they breathe in for five, out for seven, maybe four or five times. And your heart rate goes down. Now, what's the problem? Let's talk about the, the, the thing that triggered you. What, what, what is it we need to know and start doing the, that kind of thinking? So that's the first and second tools. The third tool is a circle diagram. Um, if you imagine drawing a donut on a piece of paper, the inside, the empty space, um, I could colour green. The donut, I could colour orange like all good donuts. And the outside, you could colour red. Um, and what we're saying to the learners is you could stay in your green zone, your comfort zone. We all know about our comfort zone. When you step out of your comfort zone, you might be stepping into the donut, into the into the brave space, the growth space, or you might be stepping out too far into your threat space. Um, and you have to be able to decide when your heart rate goes up, is this a challenge or is it too far and it's a threat? 
And what the brain does naturally is it appraises the situation and says, okay, my heart rate's gone up. Is this something I need a bit more energy for because it's a challenge or is it something that's outside my capabilities and it's a threat? Um, and, and so working with the youngsters to distinguish when they're in challenge and when they're in threat, those are really important conversations to have because you can reframe your thinking as excitement if your heart rate's gone up and okay this is challenging what resources do you need what is there available to support you and some teachers already use strategies like this like um brain body book boss um or c3 before me that idea of building that not dependence on teacher but the idea that there's an nca 10 resources there's um on academy on the internet and a lot of youngsters are discovering these resources on the internet so they're not totally totally dependent on the teacher but also being able to reach out to, to peers for support. Um, and a lot of maths teachers in the past haven't allowed conversation in lessons, but actually being part of a learning group is part of what keeps you safe in that donut. Um, and then the fourth thing is a ladder model, which is based on Brunner's ideas of embodiment, iconic, symbolic, but it takes it further. So if you're feeling in your orange zone or your green zone, I can't do this, I don't understand, then rather than it being I don't understand, you can say to the teacher, I need some more rungs. So it's not about you not having the ability to climb that ladder, it's about the teacher putting some more rungs in place. And that idea was developed when I was, um, my daughter was was learning to climb after she broke her back. And, um, and you just, you know, you, you put all the rungs in and then as they get more confident, the climbers kind of miss out some because they don't need them. But if they can't reach and they've got to develop their muscles to get from there to there, you don't say I'll never do it. You say I need more muscles. But for now, can I have an extra rung, an extra step? Um, and, and I think a lot of us know this from notions of scaffolding, but we don't teach the learners that language of I need another rung. Um, and so it ends up being I can't do this rather than I need another rung. So it's all language to empower the learner and fundamentally know that learners want to learn if they're feeling either safe or brave but not if they're feeling threatened. Yeah, I really like the powerful image of the donut and also the rungs on the ladder as well. That that makes so much sense, doesn't it? Um, and also a lot of what you're saying is giving the language tools to the learner for them to explain what is going on within themselves um, and how they're feeling. Other than, like you say, a lot of teachers do know about scaffolding and things like that, but it's we're we gatekeeping that information and not sharing it with the learners and that maybe is where we can make improvements. So um, where would people go, teachers who are listening to the podcast, where will they go to find out more about um, these tools and more about um, maths anxiety and resilience um, as a kind of final thought? <laughs> it, it, it's a really keen um we can put some links up to two or three papers that are intended to be accessible accessible to um practitioners um and um there are quite a lot of videos that we can link um in a year's time there'll be the mathematical resilience book we're handing it over to the publishers um in september um and there's also um, we've set up the mathematical resilience network um in the uk but also in countries around the world uh, because there are other countries wanting to use these tools because they also have the problem. So we've launched in Ireland and Brazil and South Africa um, and, and there's a small group working in Turkey. Um, and we're planning to 
to build these simple tools into um, a strategy that all maths teachers can be expected to, to know about. But if you look at the trauma-informed handbook, the strategy globally or even nationally is to have three levels of awareness. One that everybody knows how to spot anxiety, knows that it exists, knows the sort of symptoms, the sort of things we covered in the first part of this. Everybody involved in any kind of learning, so that includes the school administrators, you know, so they don't say, what's the matter with you? They say, what's happened to you? Who can we get to help? Then you have an internal level of knowledge at level two, which is people who know and can use something like these four tools, the psychoeducation, the, um, the processes of building safe spaces. Um, and one of the ways that we might do that is building either uh, more, more courses for teachers or more aware adults that we will call coaches. And what's exciting about this is that the UTF, which, which kind of runs the FE programme for teacher development, um, they've said that all RESIT students should have access to a coach. So what we now need to do is train the coaches, but um, in some colleges they've started that under the, under the previous funding. And then you need a third level of expertise, which is outside the institution, where um, you refer the really bad cases. And we don't know um, how many people are those really bad cases. But if I say that I've only met two people in the last 10 years that I couldn't help and that they needed specialist therapy, gives you some idea. And I've worked with an awful lot of people. Um, so, so we're aware of what we call extreme math anxiety, which is like um, a clinical phobia, if you will. And that, that obviously depends on them having had something very, very bad happen to them. The problem is that a lot of people think I can't do maths because it's difficult and I haven't got the maths gene and all those sorts of excuses that have built up over time because of the maths anxiety that was there. I mean, it's been written about since the 50s. So we've, we've known about it. We just haven't taken it seriously enough. And now if, if SUMAC wants 90% of the population to be enough numerate to do jobs involving data and you've got 30% of the population with maths anxiety, those sums don't add up anymore. So you have to stop thinking about maths being elite and start thinking about being something that affects everybody. So I think we need to change the narrative across the country. If, you, if somebody says, I can't do maths, I never could do maths, my mum can't do maths, which, which happens quite often, you have to say, well, what happened to them? And how can we get them back to developing that part of their personality? I feel quite ambitious for this project, which is why we developed the Maths Resilience Network. Fortunately, there are an awful lot of people with me on this. Um, who, who want to use these tools, try these tools out. And these people are all happy to support teachers with their action research, with noticing. We've got two papers we can share with teachers about how to get started. Um, we've got tools to measure mass anxiety that are accessible to teachers rather than psychologists. So you can see the impact and show the head teacher and the management that, that actually this is a thing and, and it's affecting a large number of, of, of your students. Wow. So the, the, all the work you're doing is fantastic and there is a lot out there for teachers to kind of access. And yeah, it would be great. We we will um, add the links to those papers and um, to the show notes of the podcast and all the other things that you've mentioned that will be really useful to teachers listening. Um, so we've we've come to the end of the podcast. It's been fantastic speaking to you um, today, Sue. Thank you so much for taking your time out of your busy schedule to come and come and chat to us. I'm going to leave you with one powerful image, actually, if I may. Um, it's an image from um, London of a bus um, having hit a cyclist and the cyclist is stuck under the bus and is obviously distressed, very, very distressed. And you might think that's a hopeless situation until the um, experts get there. 
But what happens is a hundred Londoners are moved to go in together and lift the bus off the cyclist. And I think what that image does is it empowers ordinary people to be part of the solution. Yeah, that is a fantastic image. Yeah, thank you very much, Sue. So to our audience, um, I hope you enjoyed the conversation today about maths anxiety, resilience, and I hope you found the topic of conversation interesting and insightful. I know I learned a lot personally um, from Sue today. Um, So if you're interested in learning more about maths anxiety um, and what tools you can use in the classroom, all the relevant links will be in the show notes of the podcast. We've got plenty more fascinating conversations for you to listen to on other episodes of our podcast um, and we're always adding more. So keep your eye on our social media um, and thank you for listening. Until next time, goodbye.